Welcome back to Contested Catch. I'm your host, Will Lever, and we've got episode 35 here, bringing you all another great guest from the industry. But first, we're joined again by our co-host and data specialist, Jeff Gould. Jeff, how are you, my friend? Uh, Fantastic, Will. Great to be back uh, in the studio with you. Awesome. Well, we're glad to have you, Jeff. And we're extremely excited to welcome, for the very first time, the editor-in-chief at NumberFire and FanDuel, the host of the Late Round podcast. You know him on Twitter as at LateRoundQB. He is, of course, JJ Zacharyson. Welcome to Contest to Catch, JJ, and how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Absolutely, JJ. Appreciate you coming on, and I'm excited for another great episode here. So let's kick it off with some season-long draft strategy. Specifically, let's talk late-round quarterbacks, something you're obviously well-known in the industry for. Um, To give listeners a refresher in case they haven't already caught this, JJ's approach to late-round quarterbacks, most recently covered on episode 377 of the Late Round Podcast. Wow, that really makes us on episode 35 feel small. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So JJ's approach starts with supply and demand at the quarterback position, leads to cheap costs of QBs in 1QB leagues, predictability of the position, not on a yearly basis, but on the weekly basis, which lends to the streaming strategy, scoring variance across QB1s, the top did not score the bottom, by as much as wide receivers and running backs do, and obviously opportunity costs because, as JJ has pointed out, league winners are generally taken in the top 30 of drafts, so taking a quarterback in that range is a missed opportunity. Did I get all that right? Yeah, no, that's that's a that's a good a good recap of everything for sure. Um, that's generally, you know, those are like the four big buckets as to why, you know, you go with that late-round quarterback approach. Absolutely. Um, so on episode 377, you mentioned it not being a game of chicken, but a game of value. And I think it's a really good way of putting it because some people will just die by the late round quarterback. doesn't matter, you know, what is going on in their draft. They just focus on that. And so in savvy leagues, it's prudent to consider taking a quarterback in that second tier if your league is generally waiting on QBs. Uh, we're interested in how this strategy can be adapted in auction drafts. And so I'm going to kick it over to Jeff here. Thanks, Will. So as you've talked about extensively, like the big thing, it's opportunity cost in the snake draft. It's kind of like explicit. You take you know, Lamar Jackson in the third round, you're giving up a third round running back or wide receiver. In an auction draft, even though the opportunity cost is like explicitly the $25 you might have spent on Lamar Jackson, you have a lot more flexibility on how to distribute that $25. You don't have to give up one for one a $25 player. You could give up, say, three, seven, or $8 players. So how does having more flexibility and opportunity cost really change your approach in the auction strategy. Yeah. So, you know, obviously there's a lot of similarities and differences with auction drafts. I I think that oftentimes the fantasy community overstates the difference between a a snake and and an auction draft because the two are are comparable in some way, you know, like a Christian McCaffrey is just as valuable in an auction draft as he is in a regular snake draft because it's the same type of league. It's not like you're changing, you know, the way that points are scored and, and the lineup restrictions, et cetera. Uh, the, the difference, you know, to your to your point, the difference in an auction draft is that your opportunity cost isn't as forced, uh, whereas in a snake draft, you're forced to pick these guys at a particular ADP. You know, if it, if it were up to me, I would never want to have a draft pick in the sixth, seventh, and eighth round, right? Because it's it's generally the difference between a sixth and seventh rounder is not that significantly different than a ninth and a tenth rounder or an eleventh rounder, uh, just in terms of like hit rate and where league winners are coming from and all of that. So what you can do in an auction draft is extract that value even more um, and basically avoid the, the players that are typically drafted around that area 
if we're comparing uh, you know, a, a snake draft uh, in the round that those guys are being drafted in from a dollar perspective to an auction draft. So what I mean by that is, let's say Jarvis Landry. Uh, I like Jarvis Landry this year, so maybe he's a bad example. But uh, Jarvis Landry, let's say, goes in the sixth round, right? Uh, in an auction draft, if that sixth round value is just a little bit worse than a fifth round value, which is just a little bit worse than a fourth round value, a typical value, then you're not really extracting the right kind of value out of that in that auction draft because realistically, there's a big drop off after round five historically um, in terms of hit rates. So what should happen is after the fifth round guys, and maybe Jarvis Landry isn't the best example in the world because you know there's obviously it's not like oh he's a sixth rounder therefore he's not going to hit, um, but Generally speaking, you can you can bucket these players and tier these players in a way where you're extracting that value because you're not you're not having to be forced to to equate that dollar value to that sixth round guy. If that makes sense, it's a very confusing and convoluted way of of sort of putting this. But to the question about you know uh, how I approach it, uh, the quarterback position then in these drafts, clearly you know a, a late round quarterback is likely to be a dollar. In, a, in an auction draft, right? Or, or, or very cheap cost. It's the same concept, et cetera. Um, but what I'm doing is I'm allocating those dollars to not, you know, divvying up the, let's say $25 that we're saving by not getting a Deshaun Watson or what have you. Um, instead of divvying up that money to get individual, uh, you know, middle round guys, I'm, you know, you can really just think of that money being put into more upper tiered guys. And then you're going with more of a stars and scrubs approach, because that's really the way that that guys hit uh, during uh, during a fantasy season. It's like the early round guys are equated to the expensive guys. Um, and once you get those middle round values and those middle round players, you're re- there's really not that much of a differentiation between them and the later round guys. So I know I just talked in circles there. <laughs> I, like I, it's a very, very difficult thing to sort of uh, talk through and explain. Um, but in the end too, you know, I, I think in auction drafts, tiers are just incredibly important because you can, play the market um, as you see, you know, if if you're tiering your players and you see, you know, again, Jarvis Landry is in a tier, let's say with five other wide receivers and you see the price of those five other wide receivers, then you can understand the opportunity cost while the draft is going on pretty clearly because you know, that's generally what Jarvis Landry should be going for. Right. Um, So that's really how I approach auctions. I don't think though, that it's that drastically different than the way that I would approach uh, a, a regular redraft league. I don't think that, the values and the way that I'm sort of viewing like middle round quarterbacks this year is going to be drastically different in a, in a regular snake versus an option. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. And I mean, especially like as you discussed with the, like the pricing of players dropping off, you know, like when you're in a snake draft, it's just linear from one position to a next in the auction is almost more like logarithmic. Right. So like you kind of just have to, like that top and then steep. The right. I have like a, a follow-up question. I'll use your Jarvis Landry example. Um, so like there's been some research lately showing um, how there's value of incorporating the, the DFS, DFS strategy of stacking in season long, helping to like raise your upside of your team. Uh, like Mike, we only just had a series on um, established to run about it. So let's say, for example, you go and you draft uh, Jarvis Landry and maybe you get him like right your market value. Maybe you get him, uh, save a couple of dollars on him. And maybe you have like, $5, you think Baker Mayfield is worth $5 or you had budgeted $5 to toss a couple of darts on your late round quarterbacks. Do you think because of the added value of stacking, you might say, Hey, I'm actually going to be willing up to pay up to $7 now for 
Baker Mayfield, even though I was initially only planning on spending $5 at quarterback just because of the potential like compounding value of having that stack. Yeah. So I, I think it's, I think it's fine to, to go with that approach. The way that I always talk about, um, you know, those like sort of micro wins within drafts and, and in team building is that it's, it's great to do as like an additive thing, as long as you're not sacrificing, um, you know, your, your optimizing, uh, your optimizing ability of your lineup. So if you're, if you're sacrificing value in some way by sort of, you know, for lack of better words, reaching for Baker Mayfield, uh, you know, like, let's say that you're spending the $7 on Baker Mayfield when there's a guy that you have in a tier above him being drafted for, or that you know that you can get for six or five or $6, I would still be getting the, the guy who's a tier ahead of him. But if you're looking within the same tier, and let's say that Baker's within that tier, uh, and you're spending $7 for him versus $5 for another guy, I think it's fine to just, you know, spend up a little bit more to, to get that player in order to get the sack. Sure. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Really, we're kind of entering like the era of the rushing quarterback, and we're even seeing this, especially for fantasy football, and it's reflected now in ADP with Lamar Jackson being the the top quarterback. And then the second tier is just like Deshaun Watson, Kyler Murray, Russell Wilson, even like Dak Prescott, maybe even Josh Allen or NEC's high third tier. And I mean, even though we're Bills fans, we'll we'll agree here, like Josh is not like a second or third tier real quarterback, but the value there is created with legs um so now we look at regression so we'll take lamar jackson he had the like best touchdown rate of the decade whether going by passing touchdowns per passing attempt or like or yards per passing touchdown which you reference a lot if we change that to total touchdowns per plays or total yards per touchdown lamar still has like a fantastic top 15 touchdown rate um over the decade but it's not like as unsustainable so is that have has that changed how you've started analyzing quarterbacks and regression or is it still just like too small of a sample size to really like nail down at this point yeah to me i'm still separating the two between passing and rushing um you know i I think that we can recognize with someone like lamar jackson that his rushing totals you know you can make the argument that he should have had more rushing touchdowns than he had last year right Mm -hmm. and that's that's often overlooked in analysis i mean a good example of that is when when I was breaking down Lamar this offseason and I was looking at the Ravens as a whole, the Ravens had 58 offensive touchdowns last year, which is bound to regress year over year. It's just what happens when teams score that many touchdowns. Um, But the thing is, and and his touchdown rate really shows that because he had the 9% touchdown rate last year, which which is not going to be repeated year over year, right? Even if he regresses to a 6% touchdown rate, which is what we typically see from that high of a touchdown rate year over year, the touchdowns that he's not scoring then would hypothetically have to go somewhere, right? And if it's, if it's then going towards rushing touchdowns, then that would then help Lamar Jackson in some way. And, you know, I'm not saying he's going he's gonna to score six more rushing touchdowns, um, but the, the, the 12 overall touchdowns that were missing from his passing total, which is what would happen if he had a 6% touchdown rate instead of a 9% touchdown rate, they would go somewhere hypothetically. Now, the difference is that the Ravens aren't going to – to score 58 touchdowns next year or as many touchdowns. So there's some regression happening there. Um, But overall, what I'm getting at is I'm still splitting up the passing component versus the rushing component, because you can still sort of factor in where some of that regression is coming from. And to me, it's easier to think of things that way. It's easier to think about, okay, Lamar Jackson isn't going to be as good of a thrower, but what happens if he were to maintain his rushing totals or what happens if he were to, you know, a guy like, uh, Josh Allen, let's say, or ra- a random example. What happens if Josh Allen 
improves on his passing numbers and maintains his rushing totals. So that's sort of the way that I approach those or approach that. So you can still have regression in certain aspects of, of a guy's game, but that guy still maintain or relatively maintain his fantasy. Total. Sure. And do you break up um, rushing between scrambles and designed rushes? Like Lamar has a lot of uh, designed QB runs, whereas Allen just since that's a, like what we're on our, our examples, Allen's a lot of his rushing production comes from scrambling. So to me, it seems like if he were to, if Allen improved as a passer, it would almost have to take away his rushing unless the bills added more design QB runs. Whereas Lamar, it doesn't seem like it would necessarily take away if he improved as a passer. Yeah. The one thing to keep in mind there, and I agree with you, but the one thing to keep in mind with that also is that if a team like Baltimore, who's likely to throw more next year, if they throw more then that gives more opportunity for quarterbacks to scramble. more. So a good example of that is with Russell Wilson, Russell Wilson's best seasons as a rusher, came when he threw the ball a lot because he was scrambling more. His designed runs year over year were pretty consistent. It's just that the difference was, you know, why did he have 10 to 15 more attempts one year than another? It was because he was dropping back to pass more. So anytime you get more of that, uh, the better, which is why, you know, especially two years ago with Russell Wilson, it was such a shame that, that Schottenheimer, you know, didn't want to throw the ball because it not only hurt Russell Wilson's overall volume numbers as a passer, but it hurt his rushing numbers too because he wasn't scrambling as much. I think uh, an interesting thing to go back to Lamar Jackson, and not to get too micro because I've been enjoying the, the macro level of this conversation, but um, one thing that might actually be understated here about Lamar is that if he regresses in the rate statistics, like touchdown rate, and, and basically his efficiency, his his counting stats might not actually suffer because Lamar, if you just look at his, his snap percentage, because of how bad they beat teams early on, he sat out almost an entire game's worth throughout the course of the season. Now, he obviously sat out. Uh, I, I'm not including him sitting out week 17. But when you add that that level of volume back, I mean, maybe it's only like 300 yards uh, or maybe 200 yards passing, 100 yards rushing, and a touchdown here or there. But still, I mean, like if he regresses from a rate perspective, that doesn't necessarily mean that all of his other stats are going to suffer. They might actually get better in some some categories as well. Um, a, a different approach to draft day is just mistakes to avoid. And I think it's really valuable to get someone like yourself uh, in the industry and doing it at such a high level to ask what's one draft day mistake that you want to steer listeners away from. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the number one thing is misunderstanding and the miscategorization of upside and what it means. Um, I, I think that we often look at upside as players who are like big play players and, and guys like, um, you know, Will Fuller is probably a bad example because he is like an upside play in a way because we know that the variance is, is insane. Um, but there's a lot of big play players who we just sort of bucket and categorize. It's going to be like a Kenny Stills or something like that, where we just categorize as upside players. And then we look at floor players in the same way, where we say James White is a floor player. Tariq Cohen is a floor player. Um, but if you really look at the variance and what could happen and what their range of outcomes looks like, I think that we are overconfident in our ability to deem who's, uh, you know, an upside play and who's a floor play um, because a lot of it just comes down to who's, who's talented and who's able to get the ball and who's not able to get the ball. So I think that's one of the big things that, that people sort of miss because, you know, when you get to the, the after round five is where I found opportunity cost becomes way less significant than, than, you know, the first five rounds of drafts. So after round five or pick 60, um, that's when you can just get kind of crazy and, and go for these guys who have 
a lot of upside. But when I'm looking at upside, I'm not just looking at this guy as a big play player. I'm looking at this guy can is projected right now by the masses to get 80 to 90 targets when I know that his range of outcomes is that he could have 130 targets. So I'm going to target that outcome as opposed to, to where he's being drafted right now in the sixth or seventh round where people think that, you know, he can only get or where his, his you know, medium projection uh, is, isn't that 80 target. Range. You know, I think a good example of that is like a, an Anthony Miller late in drafts right now. His median projection is like 80 to 90 targets. And I had, you know, on my, on my podcast, um, when I talked up Anthony Miller a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that I would be drafting him ahead of John Brown. And to me, it's because, of course, John Brown is a big play player. But if you look at his range of outcomes and what's possible in that offense, given the acquisition of Stefan Diggs, given the fact that they're more of a run-heavy team, given the fact that Josh Allen has struggled on deep balls, all of the above, you know, John Brown's range of outcomes is actually, I mean, even last year, he showed that he was more of a floor player than a ceiling player, right? Um, and so to me, Anthony Miller is the player of the two who actually has more inherent upside because of what can happen if it clicks with Nick Foles, uh, if he is the true number two there. And I mean, we saw a stretch of five games last year where Anthony Miller was a very strong wide receiver too in fantasy. So that's really what I'm looking at when I think people get wrong a lot is just this misrepresentation of what upside really is. Do you ever try to, I guess, construct a roster around a player who is typically a higher volume, you know, kind of like, a, let's just actually take the Panthers, for, for example, and separate these two players. But DJ Moore, you know, gets more underneath targets. He gets more volume than Curtis Samuel, who gets more over the top and technically higher value plays, uh, whether or not they connect on him because of Kyle Allen is a different story. But um, do you ever try to construct around those two different like archetypes of receivers? Or are you just looking at pure value? I, I, I like to actually, this is a, a Rich Rebar special, Lord Reeves, uh, who writes for Sharp Football Analysis. But no one, no one does better tier-based or arch, archetype tier-based rankings than, than Rich does. And, and what he does is it's not just looking at you know, tiers in general, most people just look at where a, a fantasy point drop-off occurs, and that's when a new tier starts in terms of a projection. But what Rich does is that he takes these archetypes and, and how they accumulate points, and he puts them together. So he'll put, you know, a lot of slot guys, let's say, who are accumulating those lower A dot points, and maybe they're not big red zone guys. He's putting them in a, in a, in a tier because that's the way they generate points. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's something to that. Um, but also, again, it's one of those things where if it's sacrificing you being optimal in a draft, don't go that direction. Um, so I'm not like actively looking for it, but what I'm doing pre-draft is I'm, you know, I know ADP fairly well whenever I'm entering a draft, but I'm, I'm sort of landscaping the draft and I'm saying, oh, I'm picking in slot two, let's say. So I'm going to get this running back in the first round. Maybe I'll get like a DJ Moore type in the second round. And then that can afford me in the third, fourth or fifth, whatever, to get more of that uh, weekly volatile, likely weekly volatile type player to sort of um, give me that floor with more and then give me that ceiling weekly with that other. Yeah, makes a ton of sense. I want to shift the conversation now over to breakouts because I think you do a phenomenal job of talking about your methodology around breakouts. And if you haven't checked this out, guys, it's most recently uh, covered on the Late Round podcast, episode 381. You can also check this out on numberfire.com where JJ's done a fantastic job of writing this up. But basically, JJ's formula, to give you a quick recap, is... Uh, Breakout running backs rarely come in the form of handcuffs, come from ambiguous backfields, meaning we're not necessarily certain who the lead dog is. Uh, they're typically pass catchers. And I think this is a really important one is they come in all ages. They aren't necessarily just young players. You did a great job of talking about that on your podcast. Um, and, and I think 
I know that you don't like to necessarily give people the answers to the draft day uh, test. So to kind of give our own application of this methodology, I was thinking about the Rams backfield. And I think that it checks a lot of these boxes, especially when you think about Darrell Henderson versus Cam Akers. Now, I don't want to exclude Malcolm Brown because of age, but I think it's I think there is a clear um, picture when it comes to Darrell Henderson or Cam Akers having more upside in that offense. Do, do one of those players stand out to you as fitting this mold better? Yeah, I mean, I think they both stand out. I would say that Henderson, given the mold that, that you know, the, the criteria that I laid out in the article and in the study, honestly, Daryl Henderson kind of fits it better because typically what we find in these breakout players is that they're in these ambiguous backfields and they're usually the number two running back being drafted on their own team. Um, and part of that is because of, of ADP and I'm, I'm only looking at guys who are being drafted after round five, but Cam Akers is also after round five. I, I, I like where Cam Akers is being drafted where I'm, I'm more uh, subjectively taking Cam Akers ahead of Daryl Henderson in, in, from a value standpoint. Um, but I do think that Henderson does fit the mold really well. The reason why I'm not as into Henderson is because I also did a study on guys who essentially flopped as rookies or didn't do very well as rookies. And especially at the running back position, if you can't find a, a reason, like he had a, 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 an injury all season long or something like that, if you can't pinpoint one singular reason as to why someone didn't produce, that player is likely not to produce, especially at the running back position where you don't need time to develop. You can just be thrown behind an offensive line and start going. So uh, from that perspective, obviously Henderson didn't produce last year. Uh, so his, his potential doesn't look great moving forward. But I've thrown darts with Henderson. I think he's a great, great um, you know, value play uh, just given the criteria that I laid out. I think a lot of people forget how exciting – Darrell Henderson was when oh, he yeah. was first picked by the Rams when they were comparing him to, you know, their Alvin Kamara. And then obviously the girly knee situation was developing. And they also forget that they traded up for him to make him their first draft pick in 2019 yep. in the third round. And now they did the same with Cam Akers in the second round, which egregious real NFL decision. Um, but alas, uh, I'm I'm still excited about Darrell Henderson. And I think the, the reason is like I watched some tape on Darrell Henderson just recently just to kind of like see did I miss something? Because I didn't think he looked that bad. If you look at the counting stats, he didn't look great. His efficiency wasn't great. But, I mean, this was the most one of the most explosive players in college football his last year. He kept the likes of Tony Pollard on the bench. And then Antonio Gibson um, didn't really do anything his, his what was it, sophomore year, I guess, um, at Memphis as well. So my, this is leading to my question. Even if you think that Cam Akers is technically a better bet, if their ADP is close enough, do you ever try to corner the market in a bat, an ambiguous backfield like this to try to make sure you get one of these breakouts? Or are you just saying, I'd rather take a 50-50 shot? Typically not. Yeah, typically a 50-50 shot. You know, I, I also, because I, I get that question all the time. Uh, and, and I'm also coming from the perspective that I'm managing a lot more fantasy teams than other people. So I know that I'll likely have an opportunity to get shares of a certain player. So I don't know how I would answer that question if I only had one fantasy team. Um, but what I do know is that just given numbers, uh, you're, you're more, you know, we're chasing upside here, right? We're, we're trying to find truly winning players. Um, and by cornering yourself to a, a, a one particular team, as opposed to getting one guy on one team and one guy in another team, um, you are sort of going for a floor there rather than a ceiling. Because what happens if both of those guys hit on separate teams, as opposed to just one guy hitting on, on that one team. So, um, you know, if we had like, really, really strong evidence that this one coach uh, loves workhorse running backs. And we know that one running back is going to emerge. 
be a little bit different. Maybe you can make that case with McVay, but I also think that that personnel is dictating that a little bit or has dictated that in the past with Gurley. And I also think that if you look at the evidence and, and look at what Daryl Henderson did last year, what he did in college, the workhorse would be Cam Akers of the two, um, just, just given their pedigree and size and all that. Um, so from that standpoint, I just think that like picking the guy who looks to be the better value and looks to be the better player is the smarter move. But again, I'm coming from the perspective of like, I'm managing tons and tons of fantasy teams. So it's easy for me to say, Oh, I'll, I'll diversify. I'll get these guys in other drafts as opposed to just gobbling them up in one. Yeah, it makes sense. What would you ballpark that number of leagues at? I'm just curious. Oh man, I'll, and we'll just say redraft and I won't count, but like redraft leagues that I'm managing every year is between mm-hmm. usually between like 15 and 20 that I'm managing. And that's then, a lot of work. And then I have dynasty leagues on top of that. And then obviously best ball is just whatever, if you don't have to deal with it, but that's the beauty of best ball. Strictly redrafts managing is usually between 15. And I just, I have a little commentary here on the Rams backfield. Um, time back into what we were, t- you were talking about with ceiling. And I remember last year, a lot of the discussion around Gurley was like, well, we know what his ceiling is. Like his ceiling is, you know, 300 something points. But I feel like that type of analysis is like really just ignoring all the other moving parts. Like, hey, they they lost Roger Saffold and he had like an outlier's like ceiling. So I feel like there's going to be people who will look at this backfield and say, hey, the ceiling of whoever takes over here is basically Todd Gurley. But that like ignores all of the you know moving parts in two seasons now, and like just like we, I just said the you know outrageous touchdown rate. Like no, the ceiling is probably more like seventy five percent of what Gurley did in twenty eighteen or something. Yeah. Not like hey, he could get you know you know ninety ninety five percent of that. Um. So like another backfield that to me will actually seems a little ambiguous despite the fact it's not even close to being drafted that way is Arizona um this is like because neither one of us feel like Kenyon Drake is a lock to be like um, is definitely a much more talented back than Chase Edmonds we think like the talent um disparity is really close if there even is one so like let's say you're in a draft, especially now this far apart from training camp where, you know, we, we may have made like, um, you know, training camps, like, Oh, Drake is clearly like the back and Edmonds is a handcuff. Do you think there might be value where if you're drafting Kenyon Drake in the second round today, you might um, then take Edmonds in the 10th round because of like, there is just such a value gap as opposed to just double tapping, um, you know, like, Henderson and Akers at like, you know, the sixth and ninth round. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good question. You know, I've done uh, studies on, on handcuffing and fantasy and I, and I think that the difference here would be perception. If you believe that Chase Edmonds has a much higher likelihood to have a role in that offense, as opposed to being strictly a handcuff, because the way that I've defined handcuff in the past is, you have top 12 running backs. Do they have a running back being drafted later in drafts, essentially? Um, and so those running backs are the handcuffs. And what I found about those running backs is that very, very rarely do they pan out. So, you know, I, I like Darrington Evans as a player. I like Tony Pollard as a player. Um, but realistically, you know, not only are you going to be drafting them and then holding on to them until an injury happens, which on average, the, the, the injuries to those top 12 running backs in the study that I did happens in week nine. So you're holding on to these guys forever, right? Which is something that is definitely not talked about enough in the fantasy world. Uh, 
you know, holding on to that dead weight onto your roster, but uh, that's, that's for another conversation. Um, but you know, you're, you're, you're drafting these players in these handcuffs. The only guys who have really panned out as handcuffs, if you remove James Conner because of the holdout season, because that's not really, you know, it's not, not a traditional situation. Uh, you have, you have uh, Le'Veon Bell when he got hurt with D'Angelo Williams stepping in. And then you have Michael Bush all the way back when Darren McFadden was the RB1 there. Those are the only two traditional handcuffs that really have done anything of, of substance in fantasy. And then what we also find is that these handcuffs step in and they're not productive because number one, we don't, we don't pick the right handcuff or number two, uh, they're just not very good. And that's, there's a reason that they're the RB2 on their team is because they're not going to warrant getting workhorse work. Right. Um, and so that's what we found traditionally. The, the average, I think the, the average points per game from handcuffs stepping in for injured guys. So given the fact that these guys are injured, the average points per game was essentially like 2017 Jalen Richard, like his, like his, his stat line. Right. Um, so to that point, you know, if you're viewing Chase Edmonds as a traditional handcuff, I wouldn't draft him. If you're viewing Chase Edmonds as someone, and I agree with you, I, I think that there's a little bit too much overconfidence in Kenyon Drake's situation. Whereas, you know, Miles Sanders going, get, being drafted right next to him, it's, it's pretty clear cut. You know, you can feel confident that the floor is there, at least for Miles Sanders. And then we know that the ceiling is there because we saw it towards the end of last year without much competition in that back. So, uh, to me, it's it's an easy choice to go with like a Miles Sanders over a Kenyon Drake in a redraft league. Um, but if you feel like, you know, Ken, there, there is sort of that ambiguity. Again, if you're in one league, maybe draft both of them. But if you're in multiple leagues, I'd rather get a Miles Sanders where you'd be drafting Kenyon Drake and then get Chase Edmonds late in case he does you know, pan out and, and have a bigger role than what we're projecting for him to have right now. Yeah, really well said. That's a, it's a uh, backfield I think people aren't, are discounting the the uncertainty there. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting. I mean, Kenny Drake hasn't had a workhorse horse role in any backfield he's been in, I think, since high school. And I, you know, yes, he's been in some talented ones, but like, how did he not dominate in Miami? Right. Like he had, you know, maybe you could blame the coaching staff. I don't know. He looked really good, but also we know the, the Cardinals backfield produces great success. It was second in rushing DVOA last year. Um, speaking of Miami, there's another backfield I want to bring up here quickly, and that is Matt Breida versus Jordan Howard, both recently acquired. Uh, Breida was traded for a fifth round pick, and Jordan Howard was signed for a two-year deal, $10 million, I believe. Um, Matt Breida, to me, is someone I'm very interested in. I'm way above consensus in my rankings on him, and I, I'm pretty sure I'm below consensus on Jordan Howard. I'm just not that excited by a really limited downhill runner like Jordan Howard. I think he was clearly outplayed by Miles Sanders, um, even though Howard's counting stats looked okay when he really got some run at the end of games. And Matt Breida is one of the most explosive players in the league, finally free of the hot hand approach in San Francisco. Does Matt Breida fit this formula of a potential breakout running back in 2020? Yeah, so I went through a bunch of guys on my show um, that I liked that fit the mold. I think I went through four guys. Tevin Coleman, Keyshawn Vaughn, Tariq Cohen, and Duke Johnson were the four that, that caught my eye that fit the mold. Matt Breida was the fifth that I didn't talk about on the show. So he would have been the, the next guy up, if you will. Uh, with Breida, you know, again, I'm, I'm going to target the pass catcher over the, the early down guy who, sure, could be the goal line guy. But, again, you know, the, the value of a goal line player slash early down runner uh, and an offense that's not projected to be a top half one in the league is not nearly as great as the LeGarrette Blunt of old, you know, when he was in New England, let's say. Uh, so I'm just not, I'm like you, you know, I'm not really excited about Jordan Howard, who's never had a significant receiving role in the NFL, hasn't been a good pass catcher in the NFL. He's fine as a, as a player. He's probably above replacement in terms of, of early down work uh, as a talent, but 
Um, to me, you know, I'm, I'm going to side with Brita, who's shown that explosion, who's shown that he can be a good pass catcher, um, and who finally, like you said, has that opportunity. So I, I'm, I'm with you. I think Brita is one of the better late round running back targets this year. Uh, I actually, I still agree on the take of like liking Brita over um, Howard, especially because like, you know, I think that ceiling is a bit higher. Not that I think either one really would be an RB1, but I was uh, going through some of the results from the big data bowl that the NFL put on this year on running back um, efficiency. So what it does is it looks at the tracking data at the time of handoff, and then it was a competition to see who could most accurately um, like create a distribution for expected yards um, at the time of handoff. And it was it, so I was – um, using that this weekend. And Matt Breida had the highest expected yards gained at the time of handoff. And like the only running back variable taken into account there is speed. Um, and then Raheem Mostert was number three. And actually Kenyon Drake in Arizona was number two. Um, meanwhile, Matt Breida then in the NFC finished towards the bottom of like percentile result, whereas Jordan Howard was uh, top six in the NFC. And, we, and I have no idea really how actionable this is because we're looking at a 12 week sample size like of one season. But I just thought that was like really interesting that, Hey, like Jordan Howard probably had a better season than we expected. And he was on pace for over 200 attempts before he got injured. And maybe Matt Breida is a little bit a, of a, um, a system running back. You know, we haven't really seen him play uh, outside of Shanahan's system. I still love Matt Breida. I mean, and he's like so durable and rugged. Um, and like we've said, like rushing is only one part of the equation for running backs. But I just thought that was like an interesting analysis. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, the other players you see that are at the top of that list are guys like Peyton Barber, Jamal Williams, and guys towards the bottom are guys like uh, Zeke Elliott was number one. Zeke Elliott was number one, yeah. But then you see Matt Breida, Miles Sanders, Todd Gurley, Saquon Barkley towards the bottom. So I think it's interesting. Um, it, it it adds to the conversation, but we'll have to kind of monitor, you know, what that looks like in terms of predictive ability going to twenty twenty. Um, JJ, I wanna I wanna ask you a random question before we wrap up here, and that is, what's a piece of content, uh, whether it's a book, movie, show, podcast that you consume during quarantine that you want to share with our listeners? Any topic doesn't have to be football, but it could be. Man, that I've consumed during quarantine. Um, man, I don't even know. I've been playing. I I've been playing so much. I I've I've upped my my Overwatch gaming uh, during quarantine. So I I don't even know what. Yeah. I, oh man, I've been playing so much Animal Crossing too on the Switch. <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. Those, those are those are probably my answers to be honest. Okay. Like, it's amazing. I don't know if you guys know anything about Animal Crossing or not. Not a ton. I haven't d- dived into it. That game is just like the dumbest game on the face of the earth, but it came out at the perfect time when everyone was quarantining. And like, all you do is just like build this little island and like, there's no point to it at all. And, but it just came out at the perfect time because no one was doing it. I remember your tweet and it was something to the effect of like, is anyone selling sheep for cheap right now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, turnips. People, <laughs> there's, a, there's a turnip market in, in Animal Crossing. <laughs> uh, so yeah, you, you, just like, you just like essentially build up an island uh, and you grow fruit and you uh, get residents to come to your island and stay there and live there. And it's the most pathetic thing in the world, but it's addicting. And I, that's, that's been my consumption. It sounds like uh, I love it. Farmville. I love it. Do you remember Farmville on Facebook from 
Yeah, it's it's not it's not unlike that. It's just like a it's a cooler like you know you get like a little avatar that you're playing with and stuff and and like you just collect items and and mess around. Uh, good stuff. That that's uh I didn't expect that the response. So that's good. You kept me on my toes there. Um, <laughs> you have uh, on numberfire.com. We were looking at some ranks before this, and you have DeAndre Hopkins and Mike Evans ranked as sixth and seventh ranked wide receivers respectively. Um, and then you have. Adam Thielen and Juju Smith-Schuster ranked 11th and 14th, respectively. Now, personally, for me, I'm giving boosts this year to wide receivers with established rapport with their quarterback and safe target domination in their offense, which both fits Adam Thielen and Juju, in my opinion, uh, while discounting wide receivers, however good, with new quarterbacks and uncertain target priorities, which to me fits Nuke and Mike Evans. What are your thoughts on, on this strategy and these players? Yeah, I mean, I think, it's, I think that's reasonable. Um, you know, I, I wish... This is one of the things with that I generally despise about rankings too, is that, you know, we have these conversations and people will dig rightfully look at, you know, they're, they're good conversation starters rankings are, um, but tiers are just so much more impactful because I would argue that a tier would start around Hopkins and then it would end. Like, I think it's pretty deep that tier, you know what I mean? Um, so like Thielen, I, I could see easily being a, a top five guy this year, um, just, just on volume alone. So um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's valid. The, the difference is, you know, with, with my projections, that's it's obviously a little bit more agnostic to that. Um, and, and with Hopkins, I still see him getting about 140 to 145 targets in that offense. It's hard to to discount DeAndre Hopkins getting a, a ball thrown to him by by a good another good quarterback and, and Kyler Murray. We know that Hopkins has proven to be one of the most talented wide receivers in the game. Mike Evans is a little bit shakier um, with with the fact that. We haven't seen Brady throw it deep very frequently over the last few years, but he's done it accurately, which is what I care about more. You know, we, you're, you're putting him in a system with way better weapons. Uh, it's a system that throws the ball vertically uh, way more often than what he's seen uh, over the last half decade to a decade, pretty much throughout his career. Um, so you have to trust that, that the weapons are going to improve uh, the, the frequency aspect for Brady, which is why Evan still looks decent in my projections and looks decent in my rankings as well. Um, I think that they're, you know, I, I think Thielen and Cousins makes a lot from a rapport standpoint is is solid. I just think they're still, and I loved Juju was a one of my bold predictions last year is that Juju could be the wide receiver one in fantasy, right? Um, I, I'm still fearful of Juju this year, a little bit. You know, obviously I still have him as a top 15 wide receiver, but I still think that there's some fear and some question marks um, about Ben's health and about what the Deontay Johnson impact could be, what it means. I think in the end, it could be a great thing, you know, similar to what we saw with, with AB playing on the outside a lot, Juju just being stuck in the slot and just being fed. I think we could end up seeing that. And I love Deontay Johnson too, but I just think that there's a little bit more ambiguity where yes, the rapport is there, but still some question marks surrounding that situation. I was just thinking about like Peyton Manning, when he went from Indy to Denver, he trained the Denver fans to be like silent when he was on offense and he would just like, so you could like hear a pin drop and he could just call everything out the line. Um, some places like New Orleans are similar with Drew Brees. So I was thinking the other week, like if we don't have fans or we only have like 20,000 fans in the stadium this year, could we see um, a passing boon with like quarterbacks having an increased ability to just um, like communicate at the line of scrimmage just because there's not going to be all the noise or do you think it would just be like limited to those veterans like Breeze and Brady and maybe like Ryan, like those types of guys? I mean, I think it's an interesting thought for sure. What, what people seem to like not wrap their head around with this kind of stuff is that for some reason, when we think of 
like a shortened training camp and like not as much time practicing, we automatically associate that with offenses playing worse, right? Whereas offenses know what they're doing. It's the same, it's the same concept as what happens in like snow games where everyone freaks out about snow games, but wide receivers are sort of at an advantage because they know where they're going and they can easily, easily out, outperform these corners, right? Uh, and, and what we saw the last time anything like this has happened was the near lockout in 2011. And or from 2011 to 20, yeah, tw- in, in 2011. Yeah. And that year was a complete, it was insane with quarterback numbers. We had Eli Manning throwing for like 5,000 yards, right? Uh, so I wouldn't be shocked if something like that happens, whether it's because of what you just noted, uh, which is really interesting, or whether it's because, you know, we're, we're assuming that, def- that, that this is all going to be a burden on the offense and uh, what's going to happen between Mike Evans and Tom Brady. Well, what's going to happen to these defenses that aren't practicing together? I think that's important as well. All right. So wrapping up here, JJ, because I want to be conscious of your time. We've got a two minute drill here. And so basically uh, we're going to ask you a couple of, you know, basically a yes or no, or a one side or the other question here. Uh, Jeff and I are going to rotate back and forth. And the first question here is total rushing yards, Lamar Jackson minus three fifty versus Kyler Murray. Uh, I'm going to go with Lamar still, even with that juice. All right. Are you buying or selling at plus 1350 Mitchell Trubisky as the 2024 XFL MVP? Oh, I'm buying the hell out of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Heck yeah. I love it. Um, over under 4.2 seconds uh, for the longest pause on late round podcast this season. Um, it's got to be over, right? I don't know, man. You've been very I, efficient. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think I might have got... I, I'm gonna go over. I, I'm. I'm gonna. I, I love that that's become a thing, though, too. That people like understand that it's just a, a bit at this point. It's, it's just so dumb, too. I have no idea why I do it. But. So let the record note that Will uh, omitted the zero at the end of that four point two zero. There you seconds. go. Four twenty. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Okay. <laughs> you can take one quarterback who retired pre two thousand five and drop them into the current NFL, and who would who would it be? Retired pre two thousand five. Yes, and uh, dropped them into the 2020 NFL. Steve Young. <laughs> yes. The way I said, in, in parentheses, I say, and why is it Steve? Young? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely <laughs> Steve Young. You got he would be he would be unreal in fantasy. Like, he he's basically like Kyler Murray, right? Like he it's it's the same type of scoring, you know, the way that he would accumulate points. It'd be awesome. Either or, Jared Goff minus two fantasy points per game versus Teddy Bridgewater. Um, I'm gonna go Teddy. I love it. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm interested in what those game scripts look like for them. Uh, they're playing the NFC South where they're going to be, you know, they're playing against Tom Brady, Matt Ryan, and Drew Brees six times a year. The, de- the Carolina defense might be the worst defense that we've seen uh, in, in like a decade. Like they, they could be that bad. So I'm, I'm going to go Teddy there. Okay. Yeah, and especially with that pass rate that uh, Joe Brady employed yeah. at LSU. Right. All right. And our, our last line here is in half PPR – Allen Robinson minus one and a half points per game versus Calvin Ridley. Oh, I'll go Calvin Ridley there. I might even have no. I saw a Rob's like a fringe top ten guy for me, but Ridley, I'm, I'm buying into the. I think he's this year's Godwin. All right, that's our back to back guest who have said that. Yeah, we we just had Evan Evan Silva on of ETR uh, last week on episode 34. It was a really good episode. Obviously, he is all over Calvin Ridley. Um, yeah, he's been. Yeah, we we have a we have a text thread, and he's we we just all we do is just talk about Calvin Ridley. Constantly. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. I have a couple friends who 
they know the guys that we like mutually love. And like this year, one of them is Miles Sanders. Last year, uh, to my chagrin, was David Montgomery. Uh, so I had friends just like juicing me up, like sending me highlights or, or uh, you know, quotes, coach speak, shit like that. It, it's fun. It's fun. Um, Love it. Yeah. Um, all right. Last question for you here, JJ. Who is a player or players that you currently don't want to leave your draft without? That's a good question. Um, I'll say I'll, I'll answer this from the perspective of guys who I seem to be getting a lot of. Um, so, you know, I, I don't want to say that I would leave without, I need to leave without them, but, um, one guy that I am way higher on, it seems like than others is Keyshawn Vaughn. Um, and it's, it's not because I'm this, like, like, I mean, I liked him a lot pre-draft. Um, you know, he was someone who, who ranked pretty high in my model. He's a, he's a jack of all trades, master of none kind of running back. Um, but there's just a lot of evidence that he could end up being a three down guy for, for Tampa Bay. And even if he's not, it just doesn't matter. You know, you're drafting him in the seventh or eighth round now. Um, and, and Ronald Jones now is, is getting drafted ahead of him in a lot of drafts. Um, but to me, he has the pass catching skill set. He has what you would want out of a player and out of a, a running back in general, but a running back in that offense with Tom Brady. Um, and, and to me, like, I, I just see the upside, the path to upside more than what I would see with like a Rojo. Um, and so he's someone that I've, I've walked away with a lot in drafts. I'm also, I'm, I'm, I'm getting Deontay Johnson a lot, despite the fact that his ADP is rising. Still think that he's a really, really strong get. Um, and then I mentioned him earlier in the show, Anthony Miller is someone that I'm targeting a lot in the, in the double digit rounds, because I mean, he's, he's basically free, but the, the upside is certainly there as the number two option in that bears offense. Awesome stuff. Thank you so much for your time, JJ. We didn't get to everything we wanted, but that shows that we had a good conversation. You know, thank you for continuing to provide a lot of value to the fantasy community. I know that our listeners are going to love the content that we put out here today. We appreciate your time and hope to have you on again sometime in the future. Yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. If you guys want to get more of JJ's content, make sure to check out numberfire.com, the late round podcast on Apple Podcasts. And obviously, you can find him on Twitter at late round QB. And if you guys didn't get a chance to check out episode 34, Contested Catch with Evan Silva, make sure to check that out as well. We appreciate y'all tuning in, and we'll catch you next time.